So I want to uh, continue this week with the theme that was uh, developed initially uh, last week, which is the theme of um, that I'm calling the anatomy of ignorance. And last week we looked at an overview of that theme in terms of uh, three main forms of ignorance. What I'm calling more personal ignorance, ignorance on a psychological level, social ignorance, and then what I was calling more universal ignorance, which is typically pointed to by spiritual traditions. And we looked, especially I think in the discussion time, at the very interesting way that framing essentially the problem of human life as ignorance, as opposed to framing it in terms of good versus evil, which is what so many cultures have done, uh, is both uh, uh, hopeful, but it's also very sobering. <laughs> but it gives some advantages from the model of seeing the, the roots of human suffering, problems, conflict, and so forth as the fight between good and evil. Uh, the fight versus good and evil also makes for better movies, <laughs> I think. Ignorance is much less cinematic, I think, than the fight between good and evil. <laughs> but, uh, and I also point to the way that we have, uh, in this culture, somewhat of a schizophrenia around that. You know, at times we seem uh, to really emphasize that ignorance is the problem and we can learn, and in a sense it's more hopeful. It also can, can really be connected with a certain amount of compassion, because we can have compassion when conditioning and ignorance are the root of unskillful behavior. And when the problem is simply that people are bad or evil, we tend to want to destroy them, or punish them at least, or lock them away forever. And you know, I mentioned how there is that uh, conflict within our culture. You know, we even can see it very dramatically in the whole history of um, the so-called criminal justice system, in which uh, at times prisons have been understood as ways for people to learn, to reform. We have the idea of reformatory, penitentiary, as, to, as opposed to penal institutions, which are more about punishment and has been, again, conflict there, you can see that conflict in many, many um, parts of culture. From the Buddhist tradition, the emphasis is clearly that uh, ignorance is the issue. That there's a kind of deep unknowing that we, that we have, which results in unskillful behavior, which is connected with suffering. And in our practice, we have a major tool for investigating that ignorance. I also mentioned how ignorance is sometimes challenging to investigate. You know, we, we sometimes talk about the roots of suffering being greed, hatred, and delusion or ignorance, or greed, aversion, and delusion or ignorance. And greed and aversion are very evident experientially. We're pretty clear when we're, maybe not old, maybe I shouldn't say that quite so strongly, we're often clear when we're greedy, 
for when we're very aversive. You know, it, it's something that we can know, oh my God, I was really, you know, I was really just caught in that, not wanting that to happen, or aversive towards that person or that situation. And we can um, really, as we practice meditation, as we develop in mindfulness, as we develop in wisdom, often the greed and the aversion, or the compulsive wanting and the aversion, become clearer. And ignorance is harder to find, often. You know, and we sometimes, by investigating greed and aversion, we open up to places where we were, as it were, on automatic. But some of the deeper roots of our ignorance are harder to access. And, and that's why I think it can be very valuable to focus on how do we actually understand and how do we actually transform ignorance. And so the framing that I gave last time, which is on, on Dharma Seed, the framing that I gave was to identify these three types of ignorance. The first being the more personal ignorance, often identified very skillfully by psychological traditions, which talk about our unconscious dimensions or, or look to places where we were uh, stuck in our upbringing or, or didn't get optimal um, nourishment or care, or there was some kind of trauma or difficulty. And a lot of Western psychology is quite skillful for identifying where developmentally we get stuck, or where we develop certain, uh, you know, what's sometimes called neuroses, or patterns of confused reactive behavior. And, you know, when we asked for hands last time, most of us had explored. It's in the culture very much uh, to explore that and to discover some of the places where one is uh, less conscious or unconscious on a personal level, in large part related to one's personal history you know, and one's basic patterns. And again, many or most of us have explored that, at least some, you know, and have probably um, worked through a lot of very uh, old and sometimes chronic patterns. So that was the first kind of ignorance, which I'm going to be particularly focusing on, I believe, next week. Because my intention was to give the overview last time, and then in three successive meetings, focus on each of these three forms of ignorance. The second, which I'll be looking at especially today, could be called the social, the social aspect of ignorance, or the aspect where there is uh, um, social conditioning that leads us to not see clearly. And this would take shape probably in a number of ways. One of the most evident is the confusion and the conditioning that we have around being a member of a certain group. We, we find tremendous confusion and significant suffering around race, gender, age, sexual orientation, nationality, religion. Um, we probably could go on you know, with, a, with a number of others. And we could see how we, have, how we have that conditioning. And again, many people have looked at some aspect of, of that conditioning. Many uh, women and some men have looked at gender conditioning you know, with, with, with a lot of depth in, in a way to 
identify it clearly and resist it. And there's been tremendous movement in that way in the last 50 years, maybe longer time. You know, there's a certain amount of attention has also gone into looking at how race influences our consciousness. And it really is so, you know, it's so pervasive how we, uh, we think in those ways. And it's, uh, that, I think, is less investigated generally, even if some of the grosser manifestations of conditioning around race uh, that manifest in discrimination and so forth, some of those have been, some of those have been ended. You know, and there also are all these, these other areas. And there are also all sorts of uh, social ideologies that we take in just from being a member of the society. And when we look back to another culture, when we look back to a culture a hundred years ago in, in the U.S., where we maybe look to a foreign culture, we can often see, oh yeah, there's that, they really have that conditioning. Of course, we don't see our own very well, right? We, we don't see, we don't see our own, but we can point to different aspects of ignorance. You know, it can be certain ideologies like the, the idea that if only we work hard, everyone will succeed, right? Which has a measure of truth to it, but it also neglects a lot of the, the pervasive systemic influences around all those dimensions I just identified. You know, and then we, we uh, criticize people for not succeeding because everyone, if, they wor- if everyone, if one works hard, can succeed. Well, that would be, that's an aspect of a kind of social conditioning which blinds us. We don't see, typically, in a culture that is so informed by what we call individualism, we don't see the larger systems. We focus so much on the individual. And that's a kind of ignorance that we have. We don't see certain things. And I'll bring that out a little more later. And then the third, the third kind of ignorance is what I'm calling more universal ignorance. And this is, um, I'll look at again in a, in a focused way, probably in three weeks. But that would be a form of ignorance that really is identified in Buddhist tradition, we can see identified in many spiritual traditions as the root problem. And that kind of ignorance can be, is talked about in various ways. Sometimes it's framed as not truly understanding the Four Noble Truths. Another way of saying that is that we don't really understand the sources of suffering and the sources of happiness. We as it were, look for happiness in all the wrong places. We look for love in all the wrong places, and so forth. And we particularly look for happiness by grasping on to experiences, people, things, careers, objects, and so forth. That's the core teaching, as we know. From, and that the deepest freedom and the deepest happiness comes more from letting go and opening up to our deep nature, which as long as we're grasping, we will never see. We will never know ourselves deeply. And so the meditative practices and the teachings associated with them are ways to get at this more universal ignorance. It's really a way that we are caught in a way of seeing, which is self-centered, which tends to see ourselves and the world as permanent, and tries to find happiness in grasping after things, and in a way sees, doesn't see our depth, doesn't see our depth, our potential, and spiritual practice is designed to let us see through that ignorance and open up to our depths. That's why we're here. That's what draws us here. 
That's why Spirit Rock exists. You know, that's right at the center of the tradition. So uh, last time I talked about how just laying out these three forms of ignorance can be very sobering. You know, a lot of work to do, right? And uh, hopefully we've signed up for that. <laughs> um, but there's a lot, it's a lot, you know, oh my God, I don't, you know. Not just one form of ignorance, but three, you know, and some of them we don't know quite what to do, you know, we don't know how, we don't, we don't know so well how to transform social ignorance. There's a lot, a lot still to be learned there. And, uh, and it's, you know, and transforming psychologically based ignorance is expensive at times. <laughs> you know, so, so, you know, how do we do this? So it's very sobering, all this ignorance to work through. But as, as I've mentioned, there's also identifying ignorance as the problem in all of these approaches is ultimately hopeful. And there are ways that we can actually um, act both in an inner way and in a more outer way to respond and transform the ignorance. And ultimately, this is a hopeful vision of human life. And I think when we work with this model of ignorance as the root problem, we probably alternate be- between feeling, my God, this is a lot, <laughs> and, and, and really feeling the, um, actually the excitement of learning. Yeah. The excitement of actually moving and learning. And how many of you have, know, some area, let's say, of personal ignorance that you were stuck in let's say, five or ten years ago that you are now free of? How many of you could identify something like that? Or go back 20 years? <laughs> okay. So, so I, think, you know, I think in all of these approaches, all of these aspects of ignorance, psychological, we can call it that, the social, and the universal, there are a number of ways to transform the ignorance. So today, I want to uh, talk especially about how we understand ignorance and how we transform that ignorance in relationship to this Earth Earth Care Week. And I want to particularly look at uh, climate issues. You know, huge issue, an issue where there's a lot of ignorance and takes many, many forms, and yet it's also workable. So I'm going to take us through this and I, I hope that we can be, we can have a, you know, encounter both that sobering aspect of ignorance and also the, the hopeful uh, perspective of working with ignorance. And I'm, I'm again, I'm um, pleased to be conducting this investigation with you, knowing that something very much like this is going on in hundreds of similar communities this week, that many people are looking at these same concerns and these same issues, hopefully to, to catalyze uh, uh, larger interests. Because I think it's not an exaggeration to say that the fate of the planet rests on that. I would, I would say that. So I think I'll, I'll look at this in a few different ways. First, I mean, probably three ways to look at this. First, just very briefly, about the realities of uh, what sometimes is called climate change, which I think more accurately should be called uh, 
uh, climate disruption. Change is very neutral. What's actually happening is disruption and even breakdown of, of patterns. So first, some on the realities of climate disruption, and then some on the way that we can see a kind of social ignorance as part of the roots of the problem. And then thirdly, talk about how we might actually uh, transform that ignorance into understanding and action. And how we can do that uh, individually, as a community, and then more collectively. So there's really ultimately a vision, a positive vision, of how to respond and how what I'm going to say in the long run is that people who have a Dharma practice, who have a sense of inner transformation, and maybe especially a sense of that first kind of transformation and the third kind of transformation, have a special role to play because I, I, I believe that, the, that, the, that connecting these three kinds of transformation of ignorance is needed to respond to the depth of the crisis that we have. In other words, that connecting our, our, our um, inner practice, which lets us really study difficult emotions, the roots of uh, personal suffering, the nature of reactivity and how to work with it, how to be with fear, despair, anger, and so forth, how to um, develop equanimity, balance, and mindfulness. These capacities are essential for the long run. And we've been training in them. We have something very important to, to offer and to, to offer and to connect with action and response. And so that's where, uh, that's where I'm going to end up. So again, my, I imagine both sobering and hopeful. So we'll try to keep a balance between the two. Okay. So interestingly, I think it's uh, interestingly for giving the talk today, both the fact that there was huge traffic jams getting here, I think very significant. And also, that, as many of you know, on uh, Monday, the UN uh, climate panel gave its re report. Some of you probably know that, maybe you've read summaries of it. Uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which the so-called IPCC connected with the UN, which has assembled, I think, some 1,500 of the foremost climate scientists in the world. They gave their report, and it was, in, in a sense, uh, um, not too much that was new, but the, the basic realities of climate change uh, was, was really an affirmation of their earlier reports that, uh, that all of the trends have continued and that they're serious, and that if they are not stopped, they will lead to unprecedented suffering. That's, that's the essence of it. Uh, this is a quote from the uh, co-chair of the group. Our assessment of the science finds that the atmosphere and ocean have warmed, the amount of snow and ice has diminished, the global mean sea level has risen, and that concentrations of greenhouse gases have increased. So it's continued. I think we, we, we know that. Um, and Another quote from the report, human influence has been detected in warming of the atmosphere and the ocean, changes to, in the global water cycle, reductions of snow and ice, sea level rise, 
and changes in some climate extremes. It is extremely likely that human influence has been the dominant cause of the observed warming since the mid-20th century. Okay, so not much doubt about scientists. And, and what they did that was new was that they said that uh, if, if the rise in temperature and connected with that the level of emissions uh, goes beyond uh, 2 degrees Celsius, then all sorts of quite horrible consequences come into play. And we already have, we already have uh, gone up by 1 degree Celsius. And there are already a lot of changes, and there are a lot of changes in motion. I think many of you know the reality of the science is that they don't know uh, what will happen in the future, and that a lot of what will happen in the future has already been set in motion. Yeah, it's close to one degree. Yeah. And um, they also said that what this means is that no more than one trillion more metric tons of carbon can be burned. So they established a number. And some of you know there was a, a well-known uh, article by Bill McKibben in uh, Rolling Stone about uh, a year ago in which he, he said he, he, he said that um, he also identified that no more than a rise in two degrees Celsius is, is a limit to aim for. And he said that uh, what this means is he, he um, calculated how many more, I think it were uh, gigatons, of fossil fuels could be burned. And the number was 565 uh, gigatons. And, he, and then he gave an analysis of how, uh, how many gigatons of fossil fuels uh, are planned to be extracted by the uh, fossil fuel companies in their, in their business plans. And the number was about 3,000 gigatons. In other words, it was five times the amount that, that you know, would lead to um, quite horrible consequences beyond the ones that are happening. And so, in other words, the current business plans of the main fossil fuel companies um, will result in catastrophe. Right? And so, I'll come back to that in, ter in terms of, of uh, action. But it's... Um, the climate scientists said if we don't stay with that two degrees uh, limit, they said uh, irreversible and potentially catastrophic climate, climatic changes will occur. And also they said that those who would be hit the hardest would be the poor and those in other countries. Right? So you can see that there are interlocking systems here. There are interlocking systems, uh, political, economic, uh, ecological, uh, and so forth. So. So we're on the sobering side, right? <laughs> we're on the sobering side. And um, they also said that without action, that two degrees limit will very clearly be exceeded within a very short time, within, definitely within a few decades. And one, one study uh, associated, I think, with the report said that uh, you know, one calculation of what's necessary to be done is that emissions have to be uh, uh, 
the emissions at the level of this year, of 2015 has to be a, a point at which emissions start being turned back. And that would be, there, the, a lot of people have done calculations as to what, what can work. And as we know, maybe the last thing to say about the current realities, we know that on the level of political action by the leaders of government, not much has been done. You know, very, very meager. You know, very, very meager, even though there have been some, um, some pledges. Uh, recently, Obama gave a speech in June, and he said that he wanted to reduce America's greenhouse gas emissions by 17% from 2006 levels by 2020. Well, it's, it's a move in the right direction. Most of the people I've read said it needs to be closer to 80%. But there we are. So, okay, that's, that's a brief version of the, of the realities. Now, how do, we, how do we understand our relationship to those realities. I think it's really important for all of us, I certainly include myself, to look at this in terms of the model of ignorance, in terms of certain kinds of ignorance that we just carry about. Because if we're really wanting to respond to this, we have to look at our own ignorance and work through it in order to be, uh, to be part of a response. So let me say a little bit about the dimension of ignorance, how this comes in, and then what seems to be required or what kind of responses are possible because they're all very, very possible. Um, so when we look to ignorance, I think there are different aspects here. Um, on one level, probably everything that I just mentioned, we know in some way, right? How many of us felt rather familiar with what the details of what I said? You know, Maybe there were a few things here and there that were knew or d didn't quite track, but the basics we know, right? Okay, and so what constitutes our ignorance? It's some way that we don't take that in, right? There's some way that we don't take that in, that it we somehow, and I, again, I speak for myself as well, we go about our daily activities. We go about our daily activities knowing that, but not quite knowing that, right? There's some way that we, and it's partly because we don't know what to do or we don't have a sense of how can I respond. And we go about our daily activities. We may, I think we're kind of vaguely aware of some of the realities such that, you know, our, you know, that this country consumes 25% of the world's resources with 5% of the population or that my, you know, uh, the household average, uh, use of uh, carbon emissions is probably three times greater in this country than in, uh, than in uh, Sweden, which probably has a higher standard of living because they have enacted certain measures, right? And double, I think, what the household amount of carbon emissions is for Germany. You know, we, we, we may not know those details. We may not know that we, you, we have each of us has about 50 times more carbon emissions than a person in Bangladesh, right? We may not know those kind of details. Um, and we, we can be confused about this. Um, so there are, certain, there are certain kinds of, one, one, there are certain kinds of denial that we seem to have, you know, and again, I, I inc totally include myself here, so we're, we're 
trying to find our way together, right? <laughs> you know, that um, there, in a, in a sense, we are like children in a burning house. And I think we know that, you know, and that there's a sense in which we, we are not facing the realities collectively as a society. We are not looking at these realities that somehow most of our lives uh, are, you know, we are, for the most part, proceeding with business as usual, while knowing that that's not going to work, right? That's unsustainable, that the current way of life is unsustainable. So there's a kind of denial that we have just to stay sane. We segment that knowledge, right? It doesn't enter the entirety of our lives. You know, one, there's a, there's a psychologist named Margaret Klein who's done really a quite skillful study of uh, denial in relation to climate change. She says there are three main forms of denial. One of them is intellectual denial, which I think probably we are not engaged in, right? We probably know what's happening. There are people who've engaged in intellectual denial and they've had a tremendous impact, right? And it's been heavily funded, as we know, by the... Uh, fossil fuel industries and by, I think, by a number of wealthy people like the Koch brothers, right? We, we know that that has happened and, and has tremendously impacted uh, public discourse starting in the 90s particularly in very, um, I would say, very negative ways that that kind of intellectual denial has happened. And even though you know, something like 97, 98, 99% of scientists have a clear consensus you know, though they have found scientists who are willing to, I, I presume, get paid to say that, you know, give a scientific voice on behalf of uh, denying these, these realities. There's also, there's also a kind of emotional denial, which is probably closer to home, that to really take this in is not easy. You know, we don't even necessarily have venues for that. I've been influenced a lot by working with Joanna Macy. And her work is really about creating venues where we can take in um, the emotional reality of these facts, of these studies, and so forth. And I think if we really take those in, even if you right now just feel what's there for you, you know, and if we were to do this more fully, we would actually maybe have a whole session where we would, we would work on what are the emotions connected with this. And when I've done day-longs on this theme, we have that as a big component. We have really wanting to look. So if you look in there right now, if you just see what is the, after hearing that statement of the facts, uh, most you know, facts and trends, if you go inside for a while, What is there? You know, what emotions or what inner states are there? Maybe if you could just name, maybe in a word or two, what would stun, shock, fear, despair, denial, sadness, overwhelm, right? Right. And if we don't have ways of working with that, and our practice gives us ways of working with that but we don't necessarily, can't necessarily access that individually. That's why work like Joanna Macy has done. How many of you know of Joanna Macy's work? Very beautiful work in which people more or less function in groups and find ways to access 
the emotions, which can be exactly the ones that we've named. And somehow opening up to those in a group setting can free up, can let us process those emotions and free up the energy. I, I've seen that very dramatically myself. When I was first doing training with her, it was quite a while ago, it was 1990-91, I remember, because we had the training the uh, weekend of the first Gulf War, actually right after it started. And I'd been active with Buddhist Peace Fellowship, having a lot of meetings on, you know, in the six months before that war started, trying to help inform people. And I um, still, when the bomb started dropping, I was in shock, right? And I was not capable of acting. You know, I was somewhat overwhelmed, just kind of numb. And we did that training that weekend, sustained work for a whole weekend in going into what people were feeling and giving rituals and practices. And I, you know, I encountered what I found there, anger, sadness, numbness, shock, could work with it, could have it be heard by others, and came out the other end. I felt freed for, for action, freed for response. So I, we can't do this today, but I just want to name that. That's really a significant piece. You know, and I feel you know, maybe part of my role would be to actually have venues where we do this. Because I think that's really necessary. That if we don't do that, we stay in, that, in the emotions that were described, right? In the overwhelm, the shock, denial. But they are workable. They are, not, they, they are not simply the necessary emotional correlates of these realities. They are more um, initial reactions. That's what happened Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'll just name that. Maybe, maybe we can use a session to do that if you'd like. I don't know. Or maybe I would do that separately, separately from from this. But I just want to name that that that's something, and we can do some of that individually in our practices. By I think by in small ways by just calling forth those emotions and being with them. It really, in my experience, it helps a lot to do them collectively to be recognized to know that these are normal patterns. You know, they're not reasons to blame ourselves, right? And so there's this emotional denial, which is, I think we can see it's pervasive, right? And it's, it's based on these, these emotions. And so somehow that has to be worked with. And that emotional denial kind of locks us into confusion and inaction often when we don't, when we don't work through this. And she said the third kind of denial uh, comes in the form of what she called environmental tokenism where we do something small and think, oh, there, I've, I've dealt with the big issue, right? I have, um, I have an electric car. You know, of course, not to um, denigrate that, but the problem is in thinking that by doing that, one has responded to the situation. Very important. All sorts of small things we can do. And so, and then, of course, there are different, you know, there's the, there are the personal levels, and then there are the various collective ideologies which are still strong, which are related to the assumptions of a kind of an ongoing consumer culture in which we can keep on consuming, keep on using resources, there are no limits, etc. Uh, those kind of assumptions still very much with us. The, you know, the sense of individualism, which makes us not look at the larger picture or not have a sense of being able to deal with the larger situation. Um, 
I could go on about the kind of the assumptions which we, to some ex- significant extent, are, are influenced by that come from our larger systems. Um, so how to respond? Okay. We've, we've gone to the sobering dimension, right? Anyone feel sobered? <laughs> sobered and shocked a little bit, I mean, if we've gone into that. So how to respond? Um, I, want to, I want to distinguish between three kinds of responses, individual, community responses, and collective responses. I think all three are necessary. You know, there's, uh, and I'll get, to, I'll get to that maybe a little in, in a moment, but um, the individual responses are very important, even though I was using the electric car you know, a little bit to make a point about how, if that's all there is, that's limited. All sorts of individual responses are a key part of a response. You know, there's a tremendous amount that one can do in terms of uh, ranging from being well-informed to uh, taking an energy audit on one's home to the extent that that's in one's control, to looking at one's transportation patterns, to living more simply, to take responsibility for one's actions, to uh, connecting more with the earth, you know. We had Earth Day here April 20th, last uh, spring, and one of the statements that most impacted me was that the real basis for action that we really protect the earth is love of the earth. And so that will come from actually being more immersed with the earth. So that can be a very important part of this, to really feel more connected with the earth so that that love leads one to, to want to act. Um, so there are all sorts of ways that we can respond individually. And there are a lot of wonderful resources out there. You know, one book that I, I've read is called The uh, Low Carbon Diet. It's, it basically gives a step-by-step way to basically cut your, cut your, your carbon emissions that are personally connected with you you know, in half or less. And it's not very hard. You know, there are a number of things that one can do, a number of choices one can make. We can also respond at the level of a community or at the level of our institutions. You know, to the extent that we are part of institutions, we can do what we can. And here again, as with the individual level, we have a considerable amount of influence, that's possible. We can work with our local institutions to try to see that they do the equivalent of the kind of individual responses I was talking to. We can look at our, uh, we can look at our systems of transportation. You know, one of the areas that I'm very conscious of, I've been looking at what is uh, Spirit Rock's carbon footprint. Right? And we don't have a full analysis. I've been influenced in this by going to the meetings of the Berkeley Climate Action Coalition. And Berkeley has a very, you know, has a, a plan that was approved by the voters, I think, 2006, to reduce emissions. I think it was by 80 percent by 2050, 20 percent by 2020. Again, modest and informed by the science of the time, which was has changed. But um, but still, that's and, and has been doing a good job of getting there. You know, when you consider growth that has occurred, Berkeley is actually reducing its emissions by one-third. 
you know, was taken to be a model for much of North America by, by some people at the UN. And in their analysis, it was interesting, the carbon emissions were 28% from households, 26% from businesses, and 46% from transportation. Transportation is a big one, and I think when, when I've looked, tried to look as carefully as I could at Spirit Rock, which is doing wonderful things, and the new building plans are very, very green. You know, there are differences on some issues, but very, very green. The, bi the big difficult one is transportation. So I was thinking, what would it be like? And this is actually where we can look at ourselves. What would it take to have carpooling for the Wednesday class? You know, what would, uh, what would that mean? You know, how, how do we at Spirit Rock reduce our carbon footprint? How do we look at transportation? I think carpooling gets right at American individualism, doesn't it? <laughs> well, I don't know about carpooling, but, <laughs> you know. And it really, it really points to the fact, I think, that the changes that are necessary will have to change our way of living. And this isn't really publicized very much. But I, I tend to think that at least some, in some major ways, we'll have to live more simply and more cooperatively if I could put it that way. And carpooling, I think, is a big one. How many people would be willing to carpool um, if there was a good system that could be designed that way? Yeah. Okay, so I see almost everyone, which is very positive. So we'll have to, okay, I saw that. We'll have to act on that. Okay. And so let me talk lastly about the collective responses. And I'll be, I'll be briefer here. Um, one of the remarkable things about reading some of the literature on climate change is that the actual practical solutions to totally respond to the situation are there. Again, many of you may know this. There are people uh, and institutions that have worked out exactly what we need to do. You know, one of the best that I've read is by Lester Brown and the World Watch Institute. You can go on the web, you know, and if you look at my resource list that I said at the back of the room, the websites are there and some of the books are there. Here's a very clear plan for reducing greenhouse emissions by 2020. It's not rocket science. It's not very hard theoretically. Uh, guess what? And I, it, it's very hard politically. <laughs> it's very hard politically, but from a technical point of view, it's not hard. You know, and he, you know, he, he has, I think, you know, I won't go into detail on it, but they're like, a few different main areas. Uh, let me see if I have this here. Uh, increased energy efficiency and conservation, shift from fossil fuels to renewable energy, stabilize the population, eradicate poverty, restore the earth, feed people. But he says that what we need to get there is a massive mobil mobilization of people who see that this is what needs to be done. And that's what the challenge is, I think, um, that we can actually do all the wonderful things individually and, collect and um, in terms of our institutions, and not much will change. You know, there's a recent article by Bill McKibben. People know him. He was founder, co-founder of 350.org, a leading voice for a long time. He said that you know, 10 or 15% of the population is very attuned to these issues. If those 10 or 15% really totally get their personal act together, 
you know, totally act, you know, on reducing energy consumption, you know, get into carpooling, etc. And if they, you know, have wonderful institutions that are expressing those values, if all 10 or 15% of those do that, almost nothing will change. But if those 10 or 15% of the people really get active on this issue and commit a, a chunk of their lives in their own way to responding, everything will change. That's interesting, isn't it? And from the study of social movements, it's very clear that a very active, small percentage of people can really have a massive change. The American Revolution was based on 3% of the population being very active. Other social movements, like maybe like civil rights movement, others maybe 5%, 7%. Get 10% of the population who commits to really making this something that you want to live with, you know, and uh, then everything will change. So the question is, am I, are you part of that 10 or 15%? Do you want to be part of that 10 or 15%? And then the question is what to do, right? But, but part of it would be connecting with organizations that are doing good work. And I think I'll close, and there's a lot more to say here, but I'll close with some of Joanna Macy's words, um, and then a, then a quotation. Um, Joanna Macy talks about the great turning, and she says that it really happens in three main ways. And I want you to listen for this, because I think all What's important is that we get engaged at some level. She said, the first kind of, there are three kinds of actions which really bring about systems level change. One is preventing further damage from happening. And that's the traditional province of activists. You know, and uh, that might mean concretely taking action so that further energy is not taken out of, taken out of the earth. You know, in the, dramatic issue these days is the Keystone Pipeline, right? And uh, if you want to see an beautiful images of that, look up. There's a wonderful song by the singer Jennifer Berezan, who flew over the tar sands with uh, Joanna Macy and uh, Anne, I forget her last name, and they took films of it. It's on YouTube, and it gives you a very dramatic view of the tar sands. Uh, and so that would be one, you know, one form of action is to prevent further damage from occurring. A second form of action is to sh start shifting the core institutions, which can happen in a lot of ways. It could happen you know, in medicine, education. What would it be like to really get the educational system teaching people about sustainability? Right? That could be one's passion. It's not like everyone has to be on the front lines, right? but you have to find where you're called. And then the third is helping to shift consciousness. Right? And I think, so this, I think what's being asked for is not that everyone drop everything and be uh, on the front lines, although sometime, at some moments maybe that's important. Lester Brown gives us one of the likely scenarios for things actually to turn about is to have a World War II post-Pearl Harbor level mobilization of the whole country to change things. That would, that would do it. You know, that would really... And, and to mobilize them, but we're obviously quite away from that. You know, and another model is this gradual model of from the bottom education and action. But that third level is shifting consciousness, you know, and it's really to say, where am I called? Which of those three? It, it can be through one's work. It doesn't have to mean drop everything, but it's to really 
see those as connected and be involved in some ways with all three of them. So I think that combining that individual community and collective response. And the collective response can, I think, needs essentially our practice. I think if we use traditional models of activism to try to make this change, it's not going to work. We need the resources, as I mentioned, uh, of a different motivation. You know, that our motivation might be coming more out of generosity to future, future generations, right? The motivation would be different. It's really, and personally, not wanting to act in ways that cause harm, coming out of our ethical commitment not wanting to act in ways that we know is, co- is causing harm and could come out of our uh, sense of compassion and our sense of non-demonization of the opponents. You know, I loved being at the uh, demonstration at Chevron early August and I, some of the speakers were traditional activist confrontational types, which I think is dated, to be honest. But some of them were saying, please, Chevron, see the reality shift to clean energy, <laughs> join us, <laughs> right? Very different model. Yeah. Um, a lot more could be said there. But <laughs> and so I think that uh, we have a lot to offer because we need the resources of compassion, of being ethically grounded, of um, being there with resources that, are, that uh, can be skillful when there is anger when there's burnout, when there's despair, when there are these emotions, and that can know how to work with them, transform them, and develop more of an equanimity. These are deeply, deeply needed. So I think that we doing this practice have, have um, very much to, to add to all this. So let, me finish with, let me finish with two quotations, and I've taken a little longer than I, I wanted. Uh, Okay, from, from about the second century from the Jewish tradition, Rabbi Tarfan, it is not upon you to finish the work, neither are you free to desist from it. It is not upon you to finish the work, neither are you free to desist from it. And then from the Egyptian novelist who won the Nobel Prize, uh, Nagib Mahfouz, the problem is not that the truth is harsh, but that liberation from ignorance is as painful as being born. Run after the truth until you're breathless. Accept the pain involved in recreating yourself afresh. These truths will take a lifetime to comprehend, interspersed with the drunken moments. The problem is not that truth is harsh, but that liberation from ignorance is as painful as being born. Run after truth until you're breathless. Accept the pain involved in recreating yourself afresh. So thank you for your, for your careful listening. And may, may that listening bear fruits.
I'm looking at the time, and we're just, we're, I did speak a little longer than I wanted to. I guess the problem is a larger one than I thought. Um, and we're, we're, we're a minute or two past 11. And so I think what I'd like to do is to um, let those who need to go, go now. We'll do a dedication of merit, and then we can finish. So may, may our time be of benefit to ourselves and to all beings. And then I'll, I'm willing to stay here if there's a discussion um, for, for those who'd like to stay, could stay for 10 or 15 more minutes if you'd like to stay and talk. Thank you. Thank you very much for your kind attention. So I'm, I'm okay with just uh, starting right now if people have questions or points. You're talking about Chevron, I think. I think let's uh, turn that off, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what do you think? Um, yeah, let's, let's leave it on. Okay. And I'll repeat the questions. Maybe yeah. in their business plan, they, they, they kind of see a future where they're involved in this, this kind of production, but they, they want to burn the fossil fuel first. So that's what needs to shift is that they realize that they can't get away. We can't, we can't get away with burning all that, all that fossil fuel. Yeah. We shift to something else. Yeah, so the, the, the point that being, that's being made is that uh, some of the energy companies would love to maybe shift to renewable energy, but they are bound by their business plans, maybe, to using, as it were, their fossil fuels. Or, or, the, or the, the, ones that, the ones that are in the earth now. They're, they're committed to taking a large part of that out. And yeah, that's, um, that's what a lot of people have pointed out. And so the, the question is, and, and so as it were, the, oh, thank you. So the, you know, the economic plan and the, the general economic assumptions of our society collide with what needs to be done, right? Yeah. Mindfulness and things like that. Yeah. Bring that out into the communities, like business communities. Yeah. Decisions are made. Yeah. How to bring both this understanding and then also bring these capacities and tools, mindfulness, compassion. Because I, as I, I said, I think that uh, that combination is extremely important. And so, yeah, to be motivated to bring that combination into one's work is beautiful. That's what I'm, what I'm really hoping to uh, invoke. Uh, Pat? Well, that's the cornerstone of what Bill McGibbon is doing with 350.org, is he is going to college campuses and all over the country that we have to take the same approach with fossil fuel companies as with South Africa. Yeah. And that is divestment from stock and uh, financial support for the fossil fuel companies because they're determined to extract every last thing out of the environment and one very concrete way to try to uh, alleviate that is for you know how Marin County is a very rich probably one of the richest in the, in the state 
and imagine a lot of the people may have mutual funds and equities that they they may look at a mutual fund and realize, wow, I've got BP stock or Exxon and didn't even know it and start putting pressure on them. Yeah. Like as they're doing with universities to divest from these stocks the way mm -hmm. it was with South Africa and that worked. So really pointing to uh, one strategy, which is that of, uh, again, based on seeing how the uh, business plans of many or most or all of, the, I don't know, of the fossil fuel companies are in conflict with, uh, with not going beyond this two degrees Celsius rise as we pres presently understand their plans. And so one of the responses is, would be, in terms of Joan Macy's model, stopping further damage from happening would be to uh, call for divestment from the stocks of these companies. And that's happening on hundreds of college campuses and can be done also. This was the point of uh, the comment uh, on, you know, at, it, with every institution. So that was, this would be part of response, right? Because he said if, if all the, that's in there, then they, you know, they calculate and research. If, they, if it comes out, it's game over. Yeah. That's the end of it. Yeah. Um, you know, I think people just aren't willing to face, you know, because the economic impact and uh, it's, you know, it's, it's hard stuff. Yeah. So let me just repeat the comment for the for for others listening that that it's uh, yeah that the analysis is that if those fossil fuels come out of the ground and are used, uh, we go beyond the limits. And, and so, uh, and yet it comes up against the, these uh, very powerful companies uh, and comes up against uh, really a lot of the economic rules of the game. Yeah. Maybe let other people speak who, who haven't yet. Yeah. Do I reach people when I'm saying 
this is this creates more problem the way we are we are in the system like their livelihoods and even just just enough i mean i'm not talking about investing in the prius i'm talking about getting basic food on the table just yeah, so the, the comment is um, just a few different concerns. Um, one is just about how to um, communicate these kind of um, issues and these kind of concerns in different settings, and particularly in a setting where, where people are... Um, poor or working class, uh, less well-off maybe than in general than Marin County, and their work is fully, as it were, enmeshed in um, systems which are based on using uh, petrochemicals such as different kinds of agriculture and so forth. And so it's really, uh, um, yeah, I would identify at least two core issues there. One, one is one that we're actually talking quite a bit in some of our teacher discussions, just about how do we talk about this. You know, for some people, uh, for some people coming to Spirit Rock or coming to a center is an attempt to find refuge from the world. <laughs> and then if, if a teacher or someone else brings up you know, a crisis, some people would feel that wasn't the contract that I'm here for. No, that's not. No, I know that's not what you're saying. Okay. I'm just, I was just connect. I was connecting <laughs> it, connecting it to other issues, mm-hmm. and and then there, you know. And so, how do we talk about this uh, in a dharma setting? How do we talk about it with other people who ha- whose uh, livelihood is dependent on the ongoing functioning of a system, and for whom a radical change would be could be very, uh, di- very uh, disorienting, and uh, there's not a clear sense of where to go, mm-hmm. you know. And so, yeah, I think multiple issues, you know, and uh, it's a large, it's a large set of issues, you know. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So, yeah, that. So, really, the point uh, that uh, those who have some power themselves must, if they look deeply, must be in conflict themselves because their own actions are going to bring about a very unstable and often scary world for their children and grandchildren. And have they looked at that? Uh, so that's, uh, I think that could be, could be an access place. Yeah, there's some kind of delusion, you know, that if people are caught in acting in ways which will undermine the well-being of their own families, there's some contradiction there, some significant delusion. Well, maybe, maybe we'll stop here and thank you for your, for your interest and uh, to be continued. <laughs> okay.
So we can Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.